tonight I want to speak about the wrong way on a one-way road. And before I do that, though, I want to um, both um, bring up the value of having experienced people working together uh, in a common way and a common purpose because uh, over years you really see a difference and change in people as they practice from year to year. And uh, when you're just starting new, everybody wants to be in graduate school. But when you're in third grade, you can't be in graduate school. It's, and to be put into graduate school, or to be put into college or high school, whatever the metaphor you want to use, is really uh, at harm, harms the person who tries to do that prematurely. So I set a standard, a prerequisite for this, and then I expect people to be integritous and come from and with only that background. So once we form as a group, uh, as I have mentioned, there's a kind of solidity of purpose and intention that it really is tangible. For those of you who have done this retreat before, it can settle very quickly. Sometimes on the spot, when we first arrive, it's we've landed. And with the a cultivation of the samadhi that many of you have, um, have uh, experimented with and, uh, and practiced over the years, that sense of settledness and that sense of, of quiet comes very quickly. <clears throat> and it's beautiful to see. And also a maturity of knowing the mind well enough so that you don't get flustered when each and every emotional of state comes through your mind. It just doesn't move you in the same way. It doesn't disrupt. You've seen it. You know it. You know it's friendly. You know that you ultimately have to own all parts of ourselves. And so the process of self-acceptance um, and acclaiming oneself fully is already well on its way. <clears throat> so those are a few of the benefits. There are many more. But now I want to talk about some of the limitations, which I'm prone to do. What is it that the limits of having seen yourself over and over again? You see, how is it? How, what is? What's the um, limitation of of a sophisticated meditative mind? Because there is, and if you don't know it, you'll get sidetracked into that very easily. And one of those is just the fact that we know it so well that we don't really show up for it anymore. There's no innocence and relationship to it. We're sophisticated and we've become kind of professional meditators after a certain number, and I don't mean you get paid for it, (laughs) but I mean that it becomes uh, easy for you to do. And from that place of ease, uh, and you have a working agreement with the mind, an arrangement, Uh, you're sitting and walking uh, believe it or not, uh, at some point becomes quite effortless, quite easy. But there's a way that the sophistication of knowing too much about the mind robs us of the innocence, which is the awakening. The the sense of of questioning, of wonderment, of and in some ways, when we're first starting the practice, that wonderment is there, though not the wisdom, and that. Wonderment, what is going on here? What am I doing here? What is this about? 
is really the setup, is the posture, the wise direction for the meditation to work in terms of its depth, not in terms of its ease, you see. Becoming easy with the mind is very different than becoming wise within the mind. And the wisdom may have a certain ease relationship with it, but it doesn't know what's going to happen and how I'm going to handle it and, and the course of the retreat and how this ups and downs go. And, and I'm very, you know, I've done 10 of them, 15, 20, 30 of them. I know the whole landscape of it. Where is there anything unknown in that? Where's the innocence? Where's the adventure? Where's the wonder? Where's the wonder? Where's the mystery? If those words don't um, resonate with you, then the meditation is off course. You're going the wrong way on a one-way road. Now, another way that this can happen is that there's an image that can grow uh, with the more retreats you've done. And that image can become a sort of your self-guiding image, especially when I find groups getting together of the more senior people. They're reluctant to really explore themselves because they're afraid of what they're going to be explore will show that they're not as wise or experienced as everybody should believe them to be. And so there is this hesitation and often a, um, a reluctance to fully investigate or look at oneself. And along with that comes a certain sense that certain states of mind should not be arriving anymore. That we should be finished with those. That we should be done with them. Right? Anger. Finished. <laughs> Never say that about the mind. Let me just let me just bring that very clearly into focus. It will just beat you to death as soon as we make a claim of such arrogance in relationship to this thing. Nothing's finished here. Nothing's finished here except our reactions to it except our reaction from it and of it and with it. Never look for this meditation to bring to bear only the qualities of goodness and delight and, and happiness and joy and all of that. Don't look for it that way. As soon as you do, we're missing our turn off completely. And I have been startled back into my humanity again and again and again from making those brash assumptions. From self-claim. From self-claim. And so that is an important quality to understand. To arrive at each with each mind state with a sense of innocence. Oh, this is what it feels like to be angry. Like we're experiencing it for the first time. So this is anger. Isn't it interesting? Wow. Not as a begrudgment, but as something sacred. 
Hmm? What is not sacred of this world? Please point out anything to me that is not sacred. Because it's only the way we look at something that makes it mundane and unacceptable. Not the essence. Not the essence. And our job is to be the alchemists and convert that aversive, repugnant thing back into the gold, back into the spiritual gold. That's, that's the art of meditation. That's not, not the sophistication. Nor the expectation of how a retreat will unfold. And this one will claim many of you in this room, even as I speak about it, you will only give me half an ear on this. Because you've been through so many retreats, you know the first day, two, it's very difficult. It's difficult for everybody. Settling in, the body's accustoming itself to being sitting in a way that it hasn't or doesn't normally every day. And just the rhythms of what we carry into the meditation from our life and the uh, confusion, the disarray, the uh, backlog of events and unprocessed uh, conversations, all of those things come boiling up. And because we have have a certain level of resistance in our everyday life to seeing those things, then when we sit down and release that resistance, guess what happens? You know, that the puppet comes shooting out of that box. And so we have a sense in ourselves, if we've done a few of these retreats, that the first couple of days, okay, just let's get over those things. Then we get into the real heart of it. And then, you know, on the way home, we lose it again. (laughs) So what's all that about? You see, first of all, the first couple of days of retreat are extraordinarily important because they're as close to your everyday mind as this whole retreat will show you. You're not going to get any closer to what you're like in normal everyday life any closer than the first day or two because this is your mind you're bringing in. It's before you've uh, conditioned and adapted it to be quiet and still. And, uh, and then it's, oh, I can ride this car forever. Sure, but what about the first two days? Those are bumper cars, aren't they? And we don't give it value. We sort of wait through the first couple of days so that we can get to the place where the thing eases and so that we can we can come out and and uh, show our spiritual hearts to to ourselves to resonate. And I don't mean to uh, downgrade those middle days. They're precious. They are precious, but they're not any more precious than the opening salvo of what the mind does on day one. How are we with our minds today? Because that's more likely how you will be when you're off retreat. Because the quiet and calm, the steadiness will come and go. And what will replace it is the confusion and reactions that many of us feel in the course of these two days. How are we here with that? Are we showing up for that? Or are we waiting for it to smooth over so that we can get on with the main part of this retreat? You see, I'm an urban Dharma teacher. 
I don't like uh, cloistered um, uh, pe- people who are afraid to come out into themselves. I don't teach urban dharma because um, I have to. I teach it because I want to, because I think therein lies freedom. And unless we can find that freedom within every avenue of ourselves, within every turn of events, within every every state, every quality, then it's a conditional freedom. And freedom isn't conditional. If we have to rely on props, then props, remove those props and our practice falls down. So this, this is the, the teaching. This is the teaching. I'm coming at you a little bit, which is my tendency to do. But a little bit of shaking from now, now and then gets your attention. You see, when we, when we look at the Buddhist teaching, there's a very definite pointing here that many of us miss. We miss it because it's not within our inclination, and so we kind of turn away from it. But he pointing very definitely, his one-way road, the arrow on the one-way road points to the difficult. But we're inclined, our lives, most of our lives, if we're just honest, are not inclined in that way. We don't live with the spirit of discovering the entrapped quality of the difficult. We refine our sense of pleasure. In fact, if we were having this retreat, as some retreats do at a resort center or on the Bahamas, you know, on the, you know, some of these yoga (laughs) retreats come do 10 days of yoga on the beaches of, you know, wherever. We'd love it and eat pineapple juice and fast and... (laughs) (laughs) But it would really be hardening the conditioning conditioning from where we come. I like the sobriety. I want, you know, this is, when you get old enough, speaking my my age, (laughs) I'm old enough. It's like you don't want to waste time any longer. Which way is this thing pointing? Let me get on with it here. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to sunbathe. If I wanted to sunbathe, that's fine. I'll go do that. But don't call it a spiritual retreat where I'm going, you know, like, okay. You know, I'm not, for some people, that's a very nice setting and the way they access it. But where's the pointing? What's the pointing here? Is it towards greater sense of pleasure? Because that's the trail, that's the road that this life, this cultural culture has been on. It's the reason that we have fought the wars we fought in recent history to maintain our level of pleasure. Oil is the substance of pleasure. And you begin to get a sense that most of our lives, you know, we'll only put up with this practice as long as it is moving in a direction that um, is pleasing to us. 
I mean, this thing should make us happier. It should make us more, I don't know. It should make us uh, happier, more buoyant. And we're not willing to go in a direction that seems to uh, suggest otherwise. But that is the direction. Happiness doesn't lie pursuing it in a direction against the arrow. You can try it. That's what we've been trying to do is to refine the sense of pleasure again and again and again to, to try to make it last longer, to try to refine it so that it never leaves. That's what our lives have been about. Has it worked? That's going the wrong way on a one-way road. And it doesn't work. If it worked, well, then why would we be here? <laughs> right? Because it hasn't worked. And so what does this way hold? Now that we've tried that way, the Buddha is pointing. I mean, his four noble truths were this pointing. He said, go this way. Now, why should I go that way, Buddha? You tell me why I should go that way. I'm not just going to go because you're pointing. And neither should you go that way because I'm pointing. But if that way hasn't worked, what are our choices? So let's at least try. Let's at least go this way and see what happens. So let's journey together here for a little bit and see what it's like to go down this road, to move toward. You see, we can't go with our inclination. The body and mind, we have to understand, is totally conditioned towards pleasure and aversion to pain. That's its instinct. If it has a conditioned instinct, it's to get out of here when going gets rough. And to head towards safety, protection, pleasure, whatever. And so, if we just follow our instincts in practice, which many of us do, we'll just keep seeking out more and more refined states of pleasure that meditation offer. And we can bathe ourselves within those refined states forever. There are Brahma realms in the cosmology of things where people are lost for eons in those states. I don't that doesn't sound good to me. I don't want to do that. I had a I had a just as an aside, at one point I was practicing absorption states and I my mind absorbed the state of metta. I, I became absorbed jhana state in metta. Now every cell of my body was love. That's the only thing. I felt like I was in love. And I was. And I thought, well, this can't, can't get any better than this. And in about ten minutes, I got bored. Because what good was it? I mean, what? So what? It wasn't complete. It wasn't total. It wasn't. It wasn't complete. And I went to the teacher. This is many, many years ago. I said, so what? She says, now you're ready for insight. So those states will come. And maybe I just stirred your imagination so so you'll go towards my hope not. Because (laughs) I hope that my conclusion keeps you in the right direction of this thing. 
But if it's not that sort of state of mind, it'll be another state. It'll be something that we can find because our inclination is to go towards, to lean into the comfortable, to relish the comfortable, to frolic in the comfortable. And we keep thinking, well, this must be Buddhism because Buddhism is supposed to make me comfortable. It's supposed to make me happier. And We didn't get in this thing to hurt. And so if we just follow our inclination, see, and what I'm showing us is that the inclination is wrong all along the way. Your inclinations are absolutely counterproductive in this practice. If, In fact, if you just do the opposite of what you're inclined to do, you would be going the right way on a one-way street. <laughs> true and so what's down this road okay Buddha as much as I hate to give myself over to your teaching because it sounds masochistic I'll go lo and behold something amazing happens first of all we find pain we become much more uh sensitive to the slight rubs of discomfort, of sorrow, of dissatisfaction, of loneliness. The rubs, we we pick up a very refined sense of being able to notice when there's a rub in in our life. And we realize that these rubs are where the unconscious are playing forth its reactive response. Where I'm, I'm not there at all. It's happening below the level of conscious attention. I'm not there for it, and neither are you. And that unless and until I show up for these rubs, they will continue to rub forever. And when I start looking at these rubs, lo and behold, I see something quite amazing. That the rub is being created by me. I'm doing it to myself. It's self-inflicted, self-imposed. Now, if nothing gets your attention, that will. When you realize that we create our own suffering, by God, does that wake you up. And when we realize that it is our unconscious response to what is happening, that has you motivated with a firm intention to make your unconscious conscious, period. But many of us in this room, despite our sophistication and despite the number of years, don't know that completely yet. And so our practice is in a, is in a kind of a purgatory It's not heaven and it's not hell. But it's workable. And I'll just kind of walk this thing for the next 20 years as a workable commodity to my grave. There is something far greater that's available to us people. And each one of you, by your own, by the fact that you are here, has a potential to access that. Not in some distant future. Not in lifetimes. I do not connect 
with teachings that promote endless, repetitious lifetimes for freedom. This freedom is now and it is available. And all it requires is us, is our intention to be full-hearted, to arrive full-hearted here and to not follow our inclinations, our conditioned inclinations towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. Because what arises in one, what builds in one, is a conviction, is a confidence, is a is a absolute knowing that our lives depend upon making the unconscious reactivity within this pain conscious. And so we, we go there because we realize everything's at stake. Hmm? Do you remember when you were in school, whatever grade, and you had an exam where everything was at stake, maybe even passing that grade was at stake, and that you had to sober up for that particular test or whatever. That, that's the intention. But multiply it by a thousand. Some of the Olympic Olympic sports have it. You know, they did a they did a study, which is just amazing to me. They this was several years ago, and I don't remember what sport it was, but some Olympic sports um, people were offered were given a test in which they said, "I will give you a pill. The pill, 50% of you will die from taking that pill." The other 50% will win the gold medal from taking that pill. How many of you will take that pill? 80% of the Olympians said they would take the pill. You see where I'm pointing on this? You have taken that pill. When you see that your life is at stake here, that this isn't just, I'm not just trying to motivate you, that this fact is that our lives are at stake. Our suffering lives. The life that we have known, the entrapped, conditioned life, which is no life. And that we can wake up out of this thing. That the potential and possibility is there. Which way does that arrow point now? Hmm? Which way am I looking now? And so we'll start moving with that. We'll start looking down the right way on the wrong way, or the right way on a one-way street. We'll start moving in that direction. And what we find is very, it's very important to dissect because pain itself, what you find is pain. It's like this hurts. Well, okay, but don't stop there. That's just, that's the first. You think this is going to fall over? You think the mind is just going to play dead? You come to some difficulty and it's going to just roll over. Oh, you found out. We discovered me. I'm empty. Now you can pass through. No way. It's going to come at you with everything it has. With fear. Hmm? 
Because much more is at stake within that that contraction around the, the difficult, the contraction. You see, we're not going to get out of pain. Pain is a part of the whole fabric of life. There's pleasure, pain. It's just the continuum is just the teeter-totter of pain and pleasure just goes like this in life. There's no way to sustain one. The more you try to, the more it goes the other direction. So you just let the teeter-totter of life play it forth itself. So pain, there's pain. Okay, fair enough. But it's the contraction to the pain. Now, I want to just move into a reference of, of what a contraction looks like when you start going at it. Because there's a lot to discover here. And it can be an, a contraction around an emotion, around a um, particular experience we're having, or it can be a physical contraction around a... But it always contains a story about itself. There won't be a contraction if there is no story. The story arises from us telling ourselves how awful this is, if it's knee pain or whatever it is, how this is the old injury I had in high school football, that this is the... And it builds in crescendo... It builds in in, uh, in um, power, uh, and that building, that amplitude, is the fear response we have of something. Is that the story grabs our attention more than the experience grabs our attention? The experience, when free of the story, really has no ownership to it. It doesn't feel like my pain. It's funny, but it's absolutely true. A quiet mind can very easily be present to pain because pain doesn't implicate it. It's not my suffering. It's not, there's no contraction around it. And that's including emotional or physical experience. Now, as we move in to the pain that's in the contraction, and we look at the story of that, we have a moment there where we have to decide whether we're going to flee, which in sometimes, if there's enough contraction and not enough wisdom in that moment, the best thing to do is to say, okay, that's it. Let me move my leg. Let me rub it. Not to stay hunkered down within that torturous environment because that's the one-way road I'm going on. Don't do that to yourself. That's actually moving counterintuitively. And I know that from experience. Because I was really a macho meditator and overstayed the experience of pain and thereby reconditioned fear into pain rather than alleviating it. And you learn quickly. If you're at all interested, if you're sincere, you learn quickly not to do that. So then... As that pain begins to unfold, we see that there's two things going on. There's the physicality of the experience and then the emotional response to that experience. And the emotional response contains the story and all of the um, real, uh, crisis, crisis of confidence, crisis of spirit, of also self-doubt. I can't do, you know, all of that comes crushing down. 
There's nothing that will get our attention or get the our psychic weak spots like suffering. Suffering will go right to where we're the weakest. If self-doubt is your weak link, boom, that's the that's the bullseye that will strike it. And so you'll, you'll say, oh, I can't do this. I'm not up to this. Everybody else can do this. I can't do this. I'm out of here. What am I even doing here? I'm no good. Bell rings on the meditation. And you can see, you can see where the sense of self is being built up within that story. Why is it being built up in the story? Because of the assumptions the story contains that I believe about myself. I believe I can't do this. I, I believe that this, that I'm not up to this task. And therefore, it reaches a particular point where the belief is so strong that I have no confidence at all that I can do it and I falter. The important point is that the reason we're going towards the difficult is that within that contraction, contraction, you and I are born. That is our womb. And you can see why it is so important to go in this way. Because that womb is completely unconsciously driven. And I keep taking birth moment after moment in my belief in the reactivity of the patterns and the assumptions that are embedded within those patterns and never question them because I have brought no light of awareness whatsoever to that contraction. In fact, when it happens, I'm out of here. And therefore, I keep birthing myself. And infusing greater impetus, greater conditioning to that birthing. And it's sobering to see that. Because once you open your eyes to something, you can no longer close your eyes and pretend it's not there anymore. Which is one of the reasons that you are all back again. Because you caught a glance of something. Just a glimpse. Maybe passing. In one of your meditation retreats. And that wisdom stuck. And you can't shut your eyes and pretend. And it may not be in this direction. Yet. But it was in some direction that led you to think and know that your lives depend upon this practice in a way that when you started you had no idea. And now we're sober together. Because when we step out of that contraction, when we have known it, for what it is, and no longer infuse the assumptions in it any longer because we see it's completely without merit, completely untrue. It's a runaway story that has no governance, only has its volume is all the way up, and you can't unplug it. 
And it's been driving our life since day one. And you see it and you think that's it. I've been fooling myself about myself. And there can become a moment. There's a, the, the scene can be so stark, so clear, the perception so penetrating that what is left is quiet. A quiet so vast it's unimaginable. And the self unformed within that vastness. Not in some kind of scary, torturous way of, I'm losing my boundaries. No. As vastness of spirit. As infinity, infinity knowing itself. Now you're going to crawl back in the thimble. Crawl back into those assumptions and reword them. And many of us get stuck in the dialogue within those assumptions where we'll just change some wording within those. We'll make it prettier. Not that that doesn't alleviate some of the pressure, intention, and anxiety, but we're not talking about alleviating some. We're talking about stillness here. Now, do you want to come? Let us put nothing between ourselves and this path. No excuses. This is possible. Not only possible, certain. Certain. With the resolve of heart. And we're out of purgatory no longer allured by the temptation of a pleasant this or aversive to an unpleasant that. Because stillness is our domain. And that rejects nothing. Sees everything. Until then, we are modification. We're in behavior modification mode. Where we see the pain of, like I said today, the pain of time. As we use and mull over time and how we create the contraction of spirit around time. And we feel that pain, but we don't know what to do about it. So we try to do some behavior modification with it. Try to release the thought when it comes up or something. And there's the pain of distance. How far I have yet to go. 
you know, my journey, my spiritual journey or any journey. I'm here and I have to be there. And that sense of never quite getting there, always having more of a journey to go, that's pain. And we recognize that with greater sensitivity to pain. We recognize the pain of time. We recognize the pain of distance. We recognize the pain of polarity. When I put this versus that. When I'm moving towards this because I want this to be a part of me and thereby in the same sentence, in the same movement, I'm aversive to the opposite. And I see how those things arise immediately together from my just, from my movement away from one towards another. And I see the torturous, how it tortures me to be within those, the crosshairs of that polarity. So I'm finished with that. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to play that game, Mara. And then there's the pain of separation, the pain of distance, the pain of loneliness, of being feeling isolated, that we think is the existential condition of ourselves because we haven't been willing to look. That's all. That's the only thing required. This is not a obstacle course. It's a awareness course. If we're willing to look, it falls apart. Driven often because we're afraid of giving up the pain that we are embedded within. It's like the story of that small child who was, I think he was three and he was, it was a Minnesota winter and his mother put him outside and uh, somebody, outside in sub-zero weather and a neighbor brought him in and the woman was tried for abuse and the child was in the court as the mother was sentenced to jail and taken away, the child was taken away from the mother and the child is reaching for the mother as he's being taken away from her. That's that's the, the allurement of our own suffering. We know it. And though it's not comfortable, we know it. And we're secure within it. We're secure within our individuality. We're secure within our separation. And so much of what we're trying to do is just convince ourselves that it's even worthwhile to get over this. To even transcend this. Because we're afraid of the alternative. What does it mean? These words like emptiness. God, what a word. And then the sobriety becomes so deep and the heart leaps forth. Come what may. And then it's over.
So you see why we're here? Let's walk together on this one. We need each other. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two?